across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sun is out, the sky is blue. There's nothing here to spoil the view. Uh, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, there's Alex Salmon alleging corruption at the highest levels of the SNP and the Scottish government. There's Harry Wales, I'm refusing to call him Prince Harry now, moaning that the British press have ruined his mental health. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, we've got jihadi bride Shemima Begum just being refused permission to come back to this country by the Supreme Court uh, after spending six years playing out a terrorist fantasy with the deadly ISIS cult in the Middle East. She's going to have to stay there now and rot. I'm quite happy about that, aren't you? Just an everyday Friday then in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham with the side order of Mr Potato Head losing his gender, Lady Gaga losing her dogs and the BBC saying they want more British cartoons on television instead of The Simpsons to help celebrate British culture, whatever they think that is. Uh, To help us navigate through all the madness, we're talking first to former Tory MP Nick Dubois, who's back on Talk Radio this weekend. I'll be asking him how he thinks the roadmap to recovery is going and possibly a little peek ahead uh, to next week's budget with Rishi Sunak, 03444991000. Coming up, we'll be checking in with Dr. Rakiba San from the Henry Jackson Society with his survey this week, showing only one in six black Britons thinks tearing down statues is a legitimate form of protest. That's one for Sadiq Khan and his commission. Plus, Brendan O'Neill is here from Spikes Online with a view of what really constitutes British culture. The BBC seems to think it's roast beef dinners, rather bizarrely. As ever, we want to hear from you, of course, even if there is an awful lot going on. Are you preparing for a big weekend? Are the kids getting excited at the prospect of going back to school? And what are you hearing from your employers, if anything? 0344 499 1000. Because it's Friday, of course, it's time for the Perrier Awards, an homage to my brilliance in broadcasting. But today... With a different twist, Marta Malagan has granted permission for Izzy Rowland to step into her shoes for one week only. Let's see how she does. We shall see. Plus, Donald McLeod will be checking in from Scotland as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's a busy show this morning because at 12.30 we're expecting to see the former First Minister of Scotland and the former leader of the SNP, Alex Salmon, stepping into a chair uh, or stepping into a room with a chair in it in which he will sit down and give his verdict on what he thinks um, the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon, the current First Minister, have been doing uh, with his uh, political career. It's quite a fascinating story. We'll bring you that, plus all the other breaking news that's going on as well. Let's kick off with Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP, author of Confessions of a Recovering MP, uh, and coming up this weekend on Talk Radio uh, tomorrow at five o'clock. Nick, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you, Mike. Nice to see you once more. Haven't seen you for a while. How have you been uh, dealing with it all? How's the, how's the lockdown been treating you? I see it was your birthday the other day. Yes, it was my birthday, on which I um, I had a magnificent cheesecake produced for me, which, <laughs> as lovely as it was, that was probably the highlight of the day, I'm afraid. We did do an extra half an hour's walk, and that was about it. Yes, but, it's you totally know, exciting, is not isn't it? Glue. No, all is not glue. I mean, I've been, not glue. I've been in quite a good mood this week, Nick, because I thought that uh, finally, albeit that some people thought Boris's roadmap was a little on the slow side, at least it's it's moving, it's going somewhere, and it feels as though we are kind of edging towards something. Yeah, and look, let's not overlook the fact that we've, you know, we haven't we haven't had a good coronavirus, have we? We've seen a lot of deaths, we've seen a lot of angst, we've had loads of problems. But the fact is, what do people want most out of life? They want hope. And the success of the vaccination programme and the fact that there is a roadmap. And even though he promised he wouldn't give us any dates, he's, of course, laid out dates, the prime minister. That gives us hope. That's what we want. Um, Look, I'm I am in the camp where I think the data is probably going to show we could have even moved faster. But am I grumpy? Am I fed up about what's been happening? No, of course not. I do see that we are making progress. But I I do think that actually, and I hope they will review things as they go along, because I think the data is probably going to show us 
been ahead of the game even further than the government. Thought. Yeah, well, that's what I think. And I mean, although we all we all get a bit cheesed off from time to time, I think it's only natural because we haven't really done anything for such a long time or seen anyone for such a long time or been anywhere for such a long time. But I, I'm like you. I think that come mid-March, we're going to be looking at such low numbers of infections and such high numbers of vaccinations that they're going to be compelled, I think, to maybe move a little faster on hospitality, perhaps on, uh, you know, people going back to gyms, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which they're planning to do in April. I wonder if they'll move it forward a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're brutal about what B Boris Johnson announced, Mike, uh, he basically told us very nicely that we've got five more uh, weeks of house arrest, basically, yes. apart from the schools going back. And, and people seem quite happy with that. I mean, it is extraordinary in this country that um, so many people actually uh, support lockdown, or at least say they support yeah. lockdown. And some, I think, want it to go on for even longer. Well, I'm definitely not in that camp. No. But, you know, Boris Johnson had a tricky act, didn't he? He, he kind of was never going to please everybody. I think we accept that. He accepts that. There's always going to be people, uh, you know, including myself, who would like to see us moving a bit faster. There is a huge price being paid out there for every day that we are not opening up. And, and frankly, Mike, you know, it's going to be over the next 12 months we see the full cost of that. Mm as our business tries to recover. Um, but equally, I totally get the fact that the last thing he wants to do is free things up just to lock us down again, because I think that would be politically a disaster, economically, it's game over as far as I'm concerned if that happens. Yes, but I do also believe, Nick, that he does need a bit of a change of tack and I'm hoping that Rishi Sunak becomes more in the ascendancy again because he's been very quiet during this period when infections have been very high, naturally, because you can't start yeah. saying saying that you should be lifting the lockdown when, when so many people were dying back in January. But I think Rishi Sunak is the sort of the, uh, the great hope for, for the economy mm. and for those of us who want to see a normal return to, to what we used to be doing. Because, I mean, you know, we haven't really even spoken yet about tourism, about the people that would travel around this country visiting places like Scotland, the Lake District, Cornwall, you know, all of those, you know, money-making enterprises and businesses that, that we so need in this country. Yeah, and I think, you know, in a way, it's, 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 um, it's interesting to know that the conversation about vaccine passports and, and has taken off in a big way. Now put aside any controversy around that. And quite frankly, I think they're inevitable. I don't know why we're fighting them. I think if you ask a publican, for example, uh, if someone wants to go and get a pint and come into his pub, they have to have a certificate. I suspect the publican will uh, put aside any issues of data protection or civil liberty and say, I want them in my pub. I yeah. want them in my B&B. I want them coming out. Yeah. So I think we're moving towards that. It's good to see that conversation. But Mike, I'm going to be talking about this tomorrow on the show between five and seven in the afternoon. I do feel also we're in a bit of a parallel world at the moment. Mm. We had, bizarrely, Sir Keir Starmer, you know, leader of the Labour Party, who, who, who who's not having a good time at the moment. <laughs> He's really not. Arguing that we should not be increasing corporation tax. Right. And you've got Tories who are agreeing with them, being told by the Conservative Party that they are rebels if they do not vote to increase corporation tax. You know, you could never have predicted a scenario like no. that in politics could you? No. And similarly, Starmer's also said he doesn't want to see business rates going up. He's also said that, uh, you know, uh, he's kind of more likely to be protectionist when it comes to small business in this country. And I do worry about the Tory party and small business because ever since George Osborne, you and I have had this conversation before, ever since George Osborne appeared on the scene, they've absolutely crucified small business in this country and made it more and more difficult uh, for people who run business to keep most of the money that they earn. And they've wrapped them all up in red tape horribly. I think I think what what the the danger is, and it's a really simple thing to understand. What's actually happening now is um, you've got a coalition now, bizarrely, of Keir Starmer and David Cameron, mm. who are both arguing not to impose taxes on business because the recovery is so fragile. Yeah. So this is all coming up, of course, because the budget's due next week. And there are conservatives like David Davis, John Redwood and others, uh, Esther McVeigh, who are also saying the same thing because they know, and, and I agree, that any imposition of tax rises now is not exactly what a business needs as it's trying to recover from having been on its knees, for yeah. Christ's sake. It's been uh, a, a drowning in quicksand with what's going on. This is the time to back off 
ease government, ease regulation, ease taxation, and let them try and recover and fly. That will be the instincts of people like Rishi Sunak. He's got the job, though, unfortunately, of realising he's got all this debt. To, to have this debt, he's got to be able to borrow it cheaply. And he can only do that, he believes, if he sends signals that he's got a plan right. to reduce the debt. So fine, talk about that, but don't introduce tax rises just talk about them if you think that's going to settle markets and let you carry on borrowing. Well, exactly right, because there's also in the Times this morning, I'm sure you've seen this, um, a plan supposedly to, to make a tax raid uh, on wealthy pensioners, about 10,000 people in this country, uh, who might be paying by 2024 an extra £22,000 a year in tax. Now, does he not know who votes for the Tory party? Because by and large, well, it's older people, um, wealthier people, uh, you would say. And also, it's supposedly going to be worth £250 million a year to the Treasury. Well, that's not that's not even going to cover the extra amount of money, the £300 million odd he's giving to schools to reopen. I think I think we've spent that in the time we've well, been talking, exactly. quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but but again, it's quite interesting. The ta- now look, these are leaks. Now, how authoritative these leaks are, we don't know. We all know the Treasury fly loads of kites before yeah. the budget and then do something either similar or different. We just have to wait and see. Mm. But look, there's two things in that Times article which I thought was quite interesting. One of them is he's actually tackling pensioners. Um, uh, but not as you and I might think of them. Mm. Uh, it's the pensioners who are basically building up pension funds of, of private capital, having worked bloody hard for yeah. it, for up to one million quid. And he's basically saying, I'm going to take away your tax benefits. It's a discouragement to save, but it is actually going to go relatively unnoticed mm. because he's not proposing to tax, as far as we know, the state pension and so forth, what most of us identify with. But look closely in that article, Mike, and he's doing something that the Conservatives ruthlessly attacked Gordon Brown for. The suggestion is he's going to freeze the increase in tax-free allowances every year that normally go up in line with inflation. He's talking about freezing the point that you pay a higher tax rate, £50,000, so that that won't go up in line with inflation. That means more and more people get caught in that higher rate tax paying, not because they're necessarily um, uh, because they're because that threshold is not rising. And it's certainly not because they're rich or wealthy. It's called fiscal drag. And that will bring in uh, quite a significant amount of money if he does it that way. Something the Conservatives criticised Gordon Brown for ruthlessly when he was Chancellor and then Prime Minister. Exactly right. So it's going to have to be quite an important and well-balanced budget next week, isn't it? He's going to have to be able to keep everybody happy, which, of course, most Chancellors don't bother doing. Usually Chancellors have got the ability to just say no to, to different government departments. But that all of that old-fashioned stuff has gone now out the window because any government yeah. department now that goes to the Chancellor has to be able to say to him, well, hang on a minute, you just gave two billion over there. You can now give me half a billion over here. And look at, exactly, and look at the pressure mounting from his new MPs, the so-called uh, Northern Wall of yeah. MPs. They are piling in the pressure saying, you've now got to make those commitments you made before the budget. Oh, and by the way, before the pandemic, when you just went and spent 400 billion rescuing the economy and keeping us all mm. going, You've got to find more money. You've got to invest in those projects for us. So look out for things. A lot of talk about investment as opposed to expenditure, yeah. because that's a neat way of trying to justify spending <laughs> more money. And he's got to do that, basically. Yeah. No, I'd like to see him putting more money into the economy, because that's the only way you're going to generate money, which will then put the money back into the Treasury. So it seems to make perfect sense to me. Let me ask you, Nick, about what's going on in Scotland, because obviously later on today uh, in this show, hopefully we'll be hearing from Alex Salmond, uh, his third attempt at trying to give his evidence to this inquiry. It's quite an extraordinary story for a, for a, for a top politician like Nick sturgeon to be involved in isn't it well you've got a flavor of what's happening uh in in their question time to first minister yeah. to nicola sturgeon yesterday when there were furious exchanges in in parliament mm. and um and 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 it kind of set the tone for what's happening so you've got to you just just stop and blink for a moment what's actually happening there you've got alex salmon the former leader of the scottish nationalist party who um himself 
took them from being little more than a, a, a small protest group mm. right up to uh, having power, levers on the hands of power in Scotland. And he came within a few percent of a referendum victory to take Scotland uh, out of the United Kingdom Union. And his closest advisor and deputy takes over from him and is now accused of basically misleading uh, her parliamentary colleagues, breaking the ministerial code, and effectively her with a cohort of uh, supporters, including her husband, mm. who is the chief executive or chairman of the Scottish Nationalist Party, as we now come to know it, thanks to Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, yes, all... who's all often corrected, but never convinced. <laughs> Correct. Um, all conspiring to basically do away with Alex Salmon and bang him up. At least that's the charge that's been put forward. Now, there is what I would call obvious evidence that Nicola Sturgeon has misled people in mm. the sense she said, uh, I didn't have this meeting on, on uh, when you said I had. I was not informed of what was going on. And then a little later saying, oh, yeah, sorry, I did. I did have that meeting. I forgot about it. Right. Now, if people think, what's Nick talking about? That is the meeting that is the heart of all of this, because it was to discuss um, the issue of Alex Salmon and the allegations against him that of, of uh, basically sexual impropriety. Yes. And, this is, and this is also the meeting that took place in her home, uh, which Peter Murrell also turned up later at, uh, but then he also forgot. Uh, that it took place. And then when he it, did remember that it took place, couldn't remember what they were talking about, but it certainly wasn't what they said they were talking about. Collective amnesia yeah. uh, is, is, is that. Now, what's happening today, of course, is Alex Salmon sets out the case for the prosecution. Because, you know, one thing I agree with um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon about is uh, the, the tendency in things like this is just to basically accept the allegation that's being put forward. Mm. So it's now going to be tested in front of a committee that's investigating this matter and then we get Sturgeon's reply next week. Listen, as far as I am concerned, they can carry on squabbling, carry on fighting because politically they have elections coming up mm. in May, which still the SNP looks set to win and that opens up all sorts of challenges for the future a possible referendum again on scottish independence if they win or will they implode the two well, architects of the smp and desperate for independence could torpedo their project well certainly true and i think polls are now showing that people even those who voted for the snp and those who want independence are starting to see cracks appearing, are starting to have less faith, shall we say, uh, in the sort of all-round efficacy uh, of Nicola Sturgeon's government. Because clearly, you know, she's doing herself a great deal of damage by letting this drag on for as long as it has and not really providing a suitable answer. And when she came out the other day with this ridiculous statement that said, just because Alex Salmond was found innocent in a court of law doesn't mean he didn't do it, you're kind of going, sorry, you know, what on earth is that all about? But you'll also know, Mike, that actually uh, not everyone follows the the the, the minuai shy of what's going on here. Most most sane, normal people, of which I don't include myself, are not <laughs> beholden to what is going on uh, in the detail. But what's happening is this picture is building of kind of dodgy Scottish politics, yeah. uh, sort of deals behind deals and trying to stitch each other up. And it's casting, casting this cloud um, over both the, the, the Scottish government, the Scottish Parliament and the leaders. And that the longer it goes on, the more that filters through, the, the, the more likely it is she will face defeat in the election. But we are not there yet. And I don't think enough has happened to ensure that will be the case. But watch this space. I mean, look. For people like me, as I've just said, this is like almost like uh, prime time viewing, watching what's going to go on. Uh, and in a way, it's a tribute to all our democracies that you can get investigations like this happening on camera uh, to hold people to account. And boy, someone is going to be held to account yeah. here. Someone is not telling the truth. And that's going to come out very soon.
Absolutely right. I mean, if it was in New York, they'd be calling it Tammany Hall politics, wouldn't they? Which is exactly well, what it looks I like. I was trying to get a gate in this. What, what <laughs> gate can we have in this? Well, you know? I mean, salmon gate. Salmon gate, I suppose. I mean, there's a, there's a fish uh, reference in there somewhere, probably fish gate. You might, you might be able to call it and uh, wrap <laughs> it all up together. Anyway, listen, great to have you back, Nick. Uh, look forward to the show tomorrow, five o'clock on Talk Radio uh, tomorrow afternoon. Nick Dubois uh, returning as the former Conservative MP, author of Confessions of Recovering MP, of course, as well. Don't miss it. Big change. This weekend. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Reading today uh, that the government has now moved uh, the NHS. Uh, out of danger, supposedly. Uh, level five has become level four uh, in terms of our COVID alertness, uh, which apparently means that the NHS is no longer at risk of being overwhelmed. So that means that when it was at risk of being overwhelmed in March, it wasn't. When it was at risk of being overwhelmed in April, it wasn't. When it was at risk of being overwhelmed uh, in October, it wasn't. When it was at risk of being overwhelmed in December, it wasn't. When it was really at risk of being overwhelmed in January, it wasn't either. So... I don't know what to make of that, really. Let's talk to Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, GP at Same Day Doctor, of course. Lawrence, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Forgive me for being slightly tongue-in-cheek cynical there, but I mean, I always now worry when they say... Shut the uh, uh, shut all the doors, you know, close all the windows, yeah. you know, make sure nobody goes anywhere because the NHS is going to be overwhelmed. I'm afraid yeah. people just aren't going to believe it. No, this is crying wolf. I mean, I was I spoke to you back in December and I was a bit pessimistic. I think partly because I had, had COVID myself. Yeah. Um, and I said we'd lost this battle. What I meant by that, and, and the NHS was very, very busy December and early January, mm. let's face it. Um, what I meant by that is the whole business of testing, tracing was meaningless. We'd lost that battle. The virus was rampant. The Kent variant was so contagious. Um, we, we couldn't contain it by test and trace. Yeah. Now, yeah. it would be surprising if this degree of draconian lockdown hadn't helped reduce it, which it has. But the main thing is we've vaccinated 20 million people now. Amazing number, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously in the most vulnerable groups, add in another 10 million, I estimate, who have had the virus and got natural immunity. Um, let us out, Mike, let us out. Right. Half, the country, half the country is protected. It doesn't transmit. There's all this stuff this week about does the vaccine prevent transmission? Well, of course it does. It would be ridiculous if a vaccine would protect you against the virus, but somehow, mysteriously, you could still pass it on to other people. That was always a nonsense discussion, in my view. <clears throat> of course, the vaccine prevents transmission. There's 30 million of us probably now protected. Let us out. Why do we have to wait till April the 12th? It's a lovely sunny day. <clears throat> I'd like to go to a restaurant, sit inside, sit outside. Yeah. Um, I don't see why we should have to wait, and I'm not. Yeah, I mean, a bowl of pasta and a glass of something rather chilled uh, and wine-like would be fantastic. Sitting out in the sunshine, you know, spring is upon us for heaven's sake. I mean, I'm looking at um, um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson yesterday saying local meetings are allowed only until the roadmap allows household mingling. May 17. I mean, we're talking 12 weeks away. Yeah, well, May 17 happens to be my birthday. Oh, good. you know, if I, I don't think I managed to get a restaurant reservation because they're all going to be booked up. Um, that's, you know, that's nearly three months. I know. What are they playing at? Look, to be fair, I think Boris is being reined in by the scientists. He, he can't go against them because... The well, public... well, yeah, but now you can surely now start to make an argument that they are being overcautious. Well, I think there have been hints that they would review the dates. And as the numbers are coming down dramatically... Uh, in terms of cases and deaths, I, I, I believe that there will be pressure for him to say, hang on, we can move these dates forward a bit so we can all get out and, and enjoy ourselves a bit sooner and get the businesses back. But look, I'm not, I'm not speaking from a commercial point of view. I think just purely from a scientific and medical point of view, there is no need to lock us all up for another two months um, because, as I say, half the country has got immunity we may be putting some younger people at risk. Schools are not a problem. Schools have never been a problem. Young, young children don't catch COVID. They don't, they don't pass it on. Teachers are not at risk. So let's get everything back to normal sooner rather than later. I mean, there are certainly uh, cases uh, in my kids' school where children have got COVID, but they certainly haven't been ill with it. Um, and I suppose the, uh, the reason for the, uh, the, the caution with, with mask-wearing suggestions and all of that, which I happen to think is ridiculous, um, is because they think 
that there's still a risk that children are going to pass it on to other people. But at some point or other, we're going to have to take the view, are we not, Lawrence, that this is a, a virus that we, we can contain if we cannot beat and that we yeah. can be prepared against. And therefore, if all of the vulnerable people have been vaccinated, what's the problem? Exactly. And let's test people with symptoms or their contacts, but mass testing. I mean, if you look at the figures, we've now done more tests per head of population than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. They're testing like crazy. They're talking about the school children being tested, what, three times in the school before in the first two weeks, and then the parents doing it twice a week. You're going to pick up either false positives or real positives that are not related to symptoms. Um, I can't see the point. Now is the time to dial down the mass testing, focus the testing on the important and symptomatic and the elderly and people in hospitals, people at risk. But, we, uh, you know, everyone jumped on the bandwagon of testing, testing, and they said, look at Germany. Mm. Well, look at Germany. They're no better off than we are. Uh, and in fact, they're worse off because they're way behind with the vaccine. Well, they've only vaccinated 4% of their population, so they are quite a lot worse off. In fact, yeah. they're worried, apparently, that there's another wave coming. Yeah, well, you see, everyone said, look at Germany back back in the last spring, you know, look how they're testing. And, and uh, you know, the, the other mainstream media, apart from you, were pressurising the government to go out and do testing. The whole app business, right. the whole test and trace, huge amounts of money spent on that. And it's just, it, you know, we're picking up positives, but they're not real cases. They're mm. positive tests that don't actually mean clinical cases. And we don't do that for for other viruses. I know this is a nasty virus. I know from personal experience it's a nasty virus, but there's no need now to do mass testing. We should you know, test where appropriate. Yes, I think that's right. And also, don't you find it slightly irritating that when things are bad, you're getting a briefing about every couple of days, and that when things are getting better, you don't hear from anyone? Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and, and you know... You know, where's the good news? Yeah, people are reluctant to pat the government on the back. They did take gambles with the vaccines. They didn't know the AstraZeneca vaccine was be as, as, as good as it is. They didn't know that Pfizer would come on stream and be as good. And, and trust me, the, the vaccine is good. I measured my antibodies yesterday after one vaccine dose. Right. And, and they're sky high. They're off, the, they're off the scale. So these vaccines are fantastic. The government didn't know when they committed to buying these vaccines a long time ago and building facilities uh, to, to make these vaccines. It right. was a gamble, and it's a gamble that paid off. Everyone criticises people for over PPE, quite rightly, but this was a gamble that's paid off, and 20 million of the most vulnerable people, that is an achievement, and we're rolling out to the over 60s now, um, adult carers, um, uh, people uh, who, who need care. Um, it's fantastic. Another couple of weeks, you know, let's all, let's all go out and start to... to to enjoy ourselves again. Well, I think once the weather gets as it is today, I mean, it's a little chilly still, but I mean, once the weather's like this, people want to go out. You know, you just see more yeah. people out and about. And I'm hearing more anecdotal stories that people are actually beginning to kind of lift their own lockdown, if you like, um, you know, yeah. without necessarily telling people about it, but just being a little bit more kind of carefree about what they do and how they and how they behave. Because well, certainly... The, park, you know, the parks are busy and it's a nice day, people sitting on benches. I did read on Twitter, one woman said, when this is over, I'm not going to a ruddy park ever again. <laughs> <laughs> It becomes a bit depressing. Well, I mean, the one thing that most of us want to do, really, is to go, well, I do anyway, is to go and find a rather secluded area. You don't want to be staggering about with hundreds of other people, do you? You want to go somewhere where nobody else is. That's the whole point of enjoying the countryside, I would have thought. But what's your view, finally, Lawrence, on uh, how far down the vaccine should go? Because obviously there are talks now about testing the vaccine on children. Um, Some people are a bit uneasy about that. What's your view on that? Well, I think that we should obviously vaccinate all adults. Uh, They are doing trials on children. Um, As I've said before, children don't get COVID badly. They don't pass it on. I would think it's not necessary. But listen, we vaccinate children against flu every year. We do that. If the vaccine is as close to 100% safe as anything can be, because nothing's 100%, and if we've got adequate supply, maybe we could consider that. But I don't see that as a priority at the moment. Okay, good to talk to you as ever. Dr. Lawrence Gurley's GP at Same Day, a doctor who's very happy with the way things are progressing, as he should be, and as indeed I am, and as we should all be. You know, if the NHS uh, is one of the reasons why we had a lockdown, because it was going to get overwhelmed, and they're now saying, actually physically saying, that it won't be overwhelmed, then why are we still locked down? That would be my question. What the hell are we waiting for? You know, it's still February. 
we're being told we can't see people in a house of our own with friends until May. Really? That seems ridiculous to me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Time to say a very good morning to Dr. Rakeeb Hassan from the Henry Jackson Society. Rakeeb, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. We've got an interesting report of yours to discuss uh, coming up shortly. But let's kick off, first of all, with the decision this morning on Shemima Begum. You and I have discussed her plight many times. Uh, I think mostly you and I have agreed that uh, we shouldn't be inviting her back here because if she, if she was invited back here, we'd never get rid of her uh, and we'd probably be supporting her for the rest of her life. Well, I'd make the point that when it comes to judicial decisions, I think both of us have been very critical in the past when it comes to matters of national security. Mm. So in this case, the uh, Supreme Court's decision uh, was, was for me, surprising, but ultimately a welcome one, because I feel that all too often our legal system functions in a way uh, that prioritises the individual rights of those who have, a, who, who have a very dubious history, including joining prescribed organisations, over the interests of collective public safety. And that really needs to change. So in that sense, I'm supportive of this decision by the Supreme Court. Yeah, I was a bit like yourself. I was surprised too, because I was expecting them to be very sort of liberal and lily-livered about it and to say, <laughs> oh, well, you know, she was only 15 when she was taken out of the country against her will. Oh, she was persuaded because she was so young. I don't go with that whatsoever. Also, she took part in some pretty horrendous acts, did she not, when she married the guy uh, who's now in prison, I believe, in the Netherlands, uh, who was in ISIS, uh, who was seen and no- was known to have killed people in a pretty brutal and horrific way she took part in some of that activity didn't she well mike let's address the point on age she was 15 years of age when she left the uk to join a barbaric organization which has been prescribed by the uk home office she was 15 that means she was comfortably above the age of criminal responsibility in england and wales Mm. which is 10 now in in terms of you know what she may have done there are accounts which suggests that she participated in ISIS's police morality unit. Uh, so essentially uh, meeting out violent punishments to women who are found to have breached morality codes. So I think I think a really important point to make here was that there were reservations in terms of the public authorities' ability to collect evidence, uh, to investigate offences in uh, conflict zones uh, ab- abroad. Mm. So the, the chances of prosecution, it's very interesting that there's existing government data which suggests that only one in 10 ISIS returnees are prosecuted. Right. And that is largely because of the difficulties in terms of collecting that evidence. Mm. So you have to take these, uh, we, we have to bear this in mind when we are examining today's decision by the Supreme Court. Well, that's right. Because I think you've said to me in the past that there's been something like 400 people returning from that part of the world where they were fighting for ISIS uh, in some way, shape or form. They might not have all been quite as active as as Shemima Begum, but um, they certainly were involved with ISIS, weren't they? Well, I I think that these individuals that you speak of, they they, they represent a serious risk pool in British society. And I think that the wider British public would would be seriously angered by the fact that there are that many people who have who have returned from uh, foreign conflict zones uh, where they were assisting and ultimately joined prescribed organisations that, that they've now they've now been almost you know they've been allowed to return back to the UK. Right. And, and how, and how well are there any of those people or all of those people being monitored? Well, I, th- I think that's definitely something that the public authorities really need to step up their efforts. 
But in, in terms of the individuals that we speak of, as, we, as we've said before, the prosecution rate, Mike, is very low. Mm. And I think that that may well have factored in uh, the decision made today. Yes, because no doubt, as Julie Hartley Brewer said to, uh, to me this morning, if she had come back, no doubt we would have had to pay for her to have a new identity assigned to her. We would have probably had to pay for her to be housed somewhere. I mean, I assume, I think her children, all, all, two of her children died or did all three of them die? I don't know if she's got children anymore. Well, I'd make the point there that ultimately I think the public appetite for Shamima Begum to return was very, very low. Yeah. And I think that as, as we've seen there with the court ruling, that it, all too often when we've looked at previous judicial decisions, they haven't prioritised the interests of national security mm. and collective public safety. And that really that really needs to change, that, that, that legal culture, you could say. Um, I, I think that all too often we've heard people make excuses or she was young, she was impressionable. Ultimately, what she did, she left the United Kingdom as a British citizen to join a barbaric organisation. Quite frankly, Mike, I have a lot more sympathy for the Yazidi women who have been systematically brutalised and locked in sexual slavery mm. under Islamic State's barbaric regime. And that's something that people who are sympathetic towards Samima Begum, they don't like to talk about that aspect no. of the issue. And as far as this legal journey is concerned, does she have any place else to go now? Or is that the end? I mean, the Supreme Court's basically it, isn't it? I don't think we can now have well, her appealing to the human uh, Court of Human Rights in, in Strasbourg, can we? Well, I think I think her legal team will will explore their options. But the, the reality of it, the, the decision here is a, is a crushing blow for her. But we have to be very firm in expressing and ultimately putting forward the view that there are serious consequences for your citizenship if you decide to join a proscribed mm. organisation. Right. As there should be. I mean, you know, you shouldn't just be able to go off and, uh, you know, become an enemy of the state and then because it suits you or because the circumstances have changed, uh, you can just come back as if nothing's ever happened. Oh, Mark, I couldn't agree more. All too often when we talk about, inter uh, when we talk about citizenship, I hear people talk about rights. But mm. What about the responsibilities? Yeah. Exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about your report, which was, was always going to be the main focus of this conversation uh, before the Shemima Begin uh, result came in. One in six black Britons only believes that tearing down statues in the wake of Black Lives Matter is a legitimate form of protest. This is a study that you did at Henry Jackson Society. Rakeem, tell us about it. Well, Mike, a big part of the report, I want to explore the representativeness of the BLM movement, especially in respect of their hard left radical objectives and goals. So mm. this would include uh, replacing the UK's market economy with the socialist system, uh, aspiring for the eventual abolition of the police and expressing support for forms of direct action in the name of black liberation. Mm. Now, what the report found was that while black Brits, they do feel that there's serious issues um, with racism in British society, and that there are definitely improvements to be made in terms of social cohesion, equality of opportunity, improving st uh, the relationship between uh, the state and its citizens. When it comes to those hard left radical objectives and behaviours, there's very little support. Mm. So fewer than one in five black British people support reduced investment for their local police force. Only a quarter supports replacing British market capitalism with a socialist arrangement. Mm. And as you say, when it comes to forms of civil disobedience um, and violent action, politically motivated violent action, support for this, or rather seeing these as legitimate forms of political protest, the figures are very, very low, Mike. As you say, uh, only 16% of black British people um, consider toppling statues as a acceptable form of political protest. And that drops even lower to 8% for the general population. And I felt that that is a very important part of the story because the, the reality of the matter is, Mike, when you move out the inner city areas in London, Birmingham, Leeds, Bristol, uh, many people in the general population probably, do, they probably don't have any close ties with a single black British individual. So when it comes to building their perceptions, they'll see a lot in the news and the media about what's going on with the BLM protests. So I really wanted to shed light on the representative or rather the unrepresentative nature yeah. of the BLM movement and its uh, radical objectives. Well, I think as most of us witnessed during the summer of last year, um, the people that tore down the statue in Bristol uh, mostly were white. 
the people who were marching around London uh, throwing bottles at the police were mostly white. Uh, I see that you've been criticised by some bloke called Dr Liam McLaughlin uh, from Birkbeck <laughs> College about your uh, uh, efforts to somehow divide the BLM movement with this report. He's also white. Well, I would make the point that apparently he read the 20,000 word report in five minutes. He well, maybe he's a very clever bloke, clearly. And that's probably why he missed a policy recommendation that called for tougher anti-racism regulations for the labour market and ways we can increase vaccine uptake in distrustful black British communities. Yes. What a nasty person I am. I know. But well, I mean, I, this I is th- typical of the left, isn't it? They, they attack you uh, and try to single you out. Uh, as some cases, this happened to Calvin Robinson as well, uh, a, a, mm. a man who uh, basically talks an awful lot of common sense, but because he doesn't spin the left-wing narrative that, that he's expected to on the grounds that his skin may be slightly darker uh, than some other people's, um, he gets uh, he gets called a sort of an Uncle Tom and, and, and even worse names. Oh, absolutely, Mike. I've seen that some of the racism that Calvin Robinson has experienced is absolutely shocking, the experience... Mm. Uh, the, the, level of racism that is faced from hard left uh, pro-BLM activists. And I think it's very interesting in the report, it showed that uh, 8% of black British people have experienced racial or ethnic discrimination at the hands of another black person. Mm. And I think that needs to be an important part of the debate when we talk about racism and community tensions. The reality of the matter is, Mike, that there's no such thing as a singular black community. They well, I was about to bring bring you onto that subject because you talk about this a lot. And I think it's a really important um, delineation that you make, Ricky, because it's ridiculous, isn't it, to, to talk about all white people being the same um, and all black and minority ethnic people being the same simply isn't true. Absolutely. So if you talk, if, if we look at the... If you look at the white population in the UK, that there are there are differences even between people of well people who would be classified as white British and people who would be classified as white Irish. Mm. There, there's differences there in terms of how their children perform at school, for example. And maybe now white the, Scottish as well. Absolutely. And then when you look at the well the the the, the notion of there being a Black Britain, that the, the, there is a Black Britain essentially uh, a single voice population that just isn't backed mm. by the data at all. There's very notable differences between black British Africans and black British Caribbeans. So something that I clearly stated in the report was that when compared to black British Caribbeans, black British Africans are more likely to be positive about UK race relations, the mm. shape that they're in. Yeah. They're more likely to report having a stable family unit during their childhood, a yeah. stable family life. They're more likely to attach importance to their religious identity. And crucially, uh, when compared to black British Africans, uh, uh, black British Caribbeans, black British Africans are more likely to report being satisfied with their life in the UK. Mm. So I think this idea of there being a singular black community is deeply unhelpful when we're looking to set social policy. And it really reduces the quality of broader political discourse in our country. Mm. And what now for the BLM movement, do you think? Because we've seen, I would say, an, a kind of an evaporation, if you like, of, uh, uh, of intensity in terms of people talking about it as much. We've got individual footballers now standing up and mm. saying, we don't think that we should be kneeling, taking the knee anymore. It doesn't seem to have any importance to us as, as British people, which I think is probably right. Um, but they've also tried to become a political movement, haven't they? How's that going? Well, I, I think it's interesting that we, we are seeing a football backlash now. So, for example, uh, Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace, he says the act of taking a knee is degrading. And I do actually think that in some ways it is lazy. Some mm. people think, oh, I've taken the knee, I've done my job now for anti-racism in the UK. Yes. And I, and I do think that, well, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a good, you know, that they, a lot more needs to be done. You've taken a knee, that, that's not the well, end. Given what we are told is the level of racism being directed at individual footballers on social media, you would suggest that it's not doing the job that it's supposed to be doing at all, quite the reverse. I, I think all too often when it comes to the gesture of taking the knee, I think there's a great deal of virtue signalling involved. Mm. A lot, uh, th- th- there are people who think that, oh, I've done this now, oh, you know, I've done my job for anti-racism in the UK. I thought um, Lyle Taylor, who's at Nottingham Forest, he, he ultimately said that there much more needs to be done in terms of combating racism in the UK, trying to create a more meritocratic uh, society, a fairer society. But the, the, the thing is, Mike, when we look at the hard left objectives that we've discussed, 
when it comes to the eventual abolition of the police, dismantling the market economy, that goes far beyond the traditional bread and butter racial fairness issues that we need to address as a nation. Mm. And they actually run the risk of alienating many people from the anti-racism movement. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Dr. Rakiba San, great to talk to you. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You, Dr. Rakiba San from the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. I've, I've tweeted out his report, which is very interesting and makes for a very interesting reading as well. So you should get on that. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's just move straight away to Brendan O'Neill from Spikes Online. Brendan, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm slightly puzzled by this BBC uh, uh, pronouncement because, like I said, uh, I'm more used to the BBC being more ashamed of Britain than actually wanting to promote it, particularly with reference to last year when they uh, decided it would be a bad idea to do last night at the proms with, uh, with, with uh, Jerusalem uh, and indeed Royal Britannia. Yeah, I'm suspicious of this story for the exact same reason as you. And I heard you just a minute ago saying that it's it's funny that the only thing that this person could think of in relation to Britain was roast beef dinners. I mean, <laughs> who eats a roast beef dinner? It, it, it actually shows how out of touch they are when they have to magic up some, you know, supposedly classic old British idea yeah. to try and show that they're in touch with us. And all it shows is that they aren't. Well, exactly. So the thing that worries me about this is that can you imagine if the BBC in its current state made loads of new cartoons? They would be so worthy. Oh, they would be God. telling children how many pieces of vegetables to eat, uh, you know, the right pronouns to use. Mm. They'd be telling them about racism. The great thing about some American cartoons, particularly The Simpsons, is that they were always very irreverent. Yes. You know, they poked fun at everyone. They were genuinely funny. I can't see the current BBC producing anything like that. No, I mean, Family Guy as well. Um, mm. and American Dad and all of those. I mean, America's been leading the way in some of these amazingly funny cartoon series, which, of course, are enjoyed not just by kids, but by, by people <laughs> our age as well. And, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Imagine if they were in any way, shape or form. I mean, you just have to look at what they commission at the moment. I don't know if you managed to see Gordon Ramsay's show the other night, which I watched mm. only under pain of death because I had to actually talk about it. It was the most drivel-filled hour of a game show that I could ever imagine. And, I mean, it was so woke, it was so politically correct, and just to make out that it was edgy, they let him swear a couple of times. But, I mean, apart from that, it was dreadful. It was, yes, absolutely dreadful. It was so bad that my family WhatsApp group were, were messaging each other while it was on, saying, <laughs> are you all watching this dross? I mean, What's happened to, to Ramsey? Absolutely. But, you know, the BBC, every time you switch it on now, there's some woke stuff happening. All day today, I've been watching BBC News refer to Shamima Begum as a runaway schoolgirl <laughs> who joined who joined so-called Islamic State. Right. I mean, even their news output is not really honest. You know, Shamima Begum, do they, you know, do they mean this... A radical Islamist who joined a, a, a terrorist movement that was enslaving Yazidi women and crucifying yes. Christians and throwing gay people off buildings. They refer to that woman, that young woman who willingly joined this terror movement as a runaway schoolgirl. So everything they do is couched in politically correct terms. It's very cautious. It's not honest very often and that's one of the problems no. with the bbc they're not doing what they should be doing it's totally misleading and they're all very excitable aren't they about the fact that she was groomed into this uh, particular horrendous ghastly lifestyle that she decided to adopt which as you say included uh, not only taking part in violent acts but torturing women uh, cheering her husband on uh, as he beheaded people and all sorts of real horrors that went on out there in syria um, but they're not that interested in anyone who's been groomed back here yeah. in this country because that's politically incorrect for them to talk about. That's absolutely right. And this is a really good example of how language is used and misused by organisations like the BBC and others. You know, the, the, the cultural institutions in this country and the left in this country, they shed more tears over the alleged grooming victim Shamima Begum than they ever did over uh, working class girls who mm. were genuinely groomed by vicious gangs and, and raped and abused. That was a story that was very often pushed under the carpet. People didn't want to talk about mm. it, including the BBC, who wasn't very uh, was never very happy talking about it. And yet when it comes to Shamima Begum, all we hear is that she's a victim. She was led astray. She's a grooming victim. Mm. We need to bring her back and help her. The double standards are staggering. And this is one of the reasons people are losing faith in institutions like the BBC. And they probably don't trust it to produce 
a good cartoon, just like they don't trust it to produce honest news. No, exactly right. And I mean, again, as you say, the kind of the the the, the focus of everything that they do now um, is is bizarre. I mean, yesterday I think it was the Telegraph who had the story saying that they're trying to attract now more working class people, as if they're a kind of you know entity that they've never met before. You know, the way that they were, they were describing how they were going to do it. I mean, it's very simple to me. Surely all you do, if you're the BBC, is you go into communities of this country, regardless of colour, and you look at kids who might be underprivileged and you try and encourage them to take part in some kind of apprenticeship scheme and you award them the ability to go and work at the BBC. It's not difficult. You don't have to suddenly go, oh, uh, how, how do we find these people? Does anyone know anyone who might be working class? I mean, it's like it's a complete mystery to them. It, absolutely right. And that's exactly what they should be doing. They should be going around the country, uh, engaging with young people in particular and looking for talent. And no one, you know, well, the vast, vast majority of people don't care what colour those people are, no. what sexuality they are, whether they are able bodied or disabled. People don't care about this stuff. They just want good news reporters, good entertainment, good quality output, and they don't care who's producing it. So the BBC's diversity drive is it really sums up how out of touch it is. And they are like, um, you know, Victorian style colonialists going out into the country to look at all these weird tribes. You know, where are the working classes? Where do they live? How do we speak with them? They're so out of yes. touch. And of course, the other thing they're doing is making all of their staff do unconscious bias training so that they will all be brainwashed into woke thinking. So the BBC, you know, we all had lots of hopes for the BBC when Tim Davy took over because he was making some good noises about the problem of wokeness and so on. But actually, it looks like it's going to get worse and worse, certainly before it gets any better. Well, I think because we are entrusting in, in these organisations, the civil service, I would say, is in the same boat, to people who are all the same. They've all come out of the same education system. They've all come out of the same box, effectively. They all think the same way. They really are actually intellectually in the minority in terms of how they think and what they want out of life. They're all pro-EU. You know, they're all Remainers. They're all lefties. They're sort of living uh, very well. Thank you very much indeed, because they've got wealthy parents. Because I wonder about whether this is a thing, that a lot of these kids who end up going to work at the BBC can work for not very much money because mummy and daddy are quite well off. Whereas real, ordinary, honest-to-goodness working-class boys and girls need to actually make a living for themselves because their parents haven't got any money. That's right. And, you know, the, the BBC's diversity drive is all wrong for precisely that reason. The problem at the BBC is a lack of intellectual diversity, a lack of political diversity. They all think the same thing. They all come from the same kinds of constituencies. They all have the same political outlook, you know, anti-Brexit, pro-woke, uh, hate the Tories, probably. They yeah. all read The Guardian. The, the problem is a lack, a dearth, in fact, of political diversity. The problem is not that they need more non-white people, more disabled people, more working class people. They just need to open up to different points of view, open mm. up to the points of view of the masses, which they very rarely reflect, and then accept people into the corporation on the basis of talent and merit. Yes. And if the BBC did those things, it would be in a far better state than it is right now. Well, listen, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, Brendan, but when I was a, a kid, we watched the BBC with, with some awe because it was genuinely a world-class organisation with world-class presenters very, very intelligent people who had literally no bias whatsoever. Now, I mean, you can't even watch the one show without getting some kind of ludicrous piece of advice about, you know, something that they're trying to push politically. Yeah, and I, I had the exact same experience. You know, when I was growing up and generations before mine, you know, we weren't BBC bashers. We weren't no. necessarily, we weren't against the idea of a public broadcaster, which would, you know, stand a little bit above the fray, would work to a different standard to everyone else. You know, that's, in principle, that's a good idea, a, a broadcaster that takes on board the needs and interests of the public. Mm. But the BBC has stopped doing that. That's the problem. It no longer reflects public opinion. In fact, it's horrified by public opinion very often. Oh, yeah. It no longer gives the, the public good, uh, well-structured news, good entertainment, good quality programmes. It's become this sniffy, aloof organisation which looks down its nose at the public. And when a public broadcaster starts doing that, we know it's in trouble. Absolutely right. And they're getting in the neck today uh, about this show Pooch Perfect that they put out last night, which apparently, I can't imagine who uh, agreed to this one, uh, where they had a lot of people dyeing the hair and the fur of dogs to make them look different. I mean, it seems entirely bizarre. I don't know who's picking these shows that they're putting out now, but it just seems ridiculous. 
completely bizarre they flip between doing painfully worthy things you know the way in which their nature programs for example which used to be the envy of the world and in some cases they still are but they've become so worthy you know always oh country farm is a nightmare isn't it yeah it's all about climate change it's all about how destructive humanity is so they either have these incredibly painfully worthy tv shows or they have this kind of dross this kind of dumbed down entertainment which they think the people want so they don't really know what they're doing. They've got an identity crisis, and mm. that identity crisis will not be solved by becoming more and more woke. They can only solve it by actually getting back to their original uh, raison d'etre, which is to provide the public of this country with very high-quality programming. Yes. So if you were able to talk to this Patricia Hidalgo woman and disavow her of her belief that roast beef dinners are the only British cultural things you can think of, I mean, what are uh, British cultural icons these days? I mean, what, what would you say that they are? Well, I think she needs to get out into the country. She needs to talk to the kinds of communities who voted for Brexit and and particularly the younger people who who voted for Brexit and the people who the younger generations who love American cartoons and grew up on American cartoons right. I've got a younger I've got a brother who's much younger than me they grew up on this these American cartoons the Simpsons SpongeBob SquarePants all this stuff oh, I love SpongeBob I thought that you know, was great it, it's very surreal it's very funny it's ridiculous it's irreverent Kids But it's very country, clever as well though Yeah and very clever and Kids in this country love those cartoons, not because they are enamoured by America, but because they're good and they're funny. And that's the kind of thing they probably would like the BBC to to produce. But I doubt very much that most of the younger generations around this country would trust the BBC to be able to do that. So, you know, they need to put their money where their mouth is. If they're honest about this, let's see if they can produce a world-class cartoon series on on a par with... The Simpsons or South Park, which yeah. I know is for adults, or something like that. Let's see if they can do that. Let's, you know, they should they should see if they're really up to the task. And if they're not, then they need to have a word with themselves. I mean, can you imagine South Park? I mean, they'd have to pass it through the diversity department, you know, the hate department, probably the kind of the uh, the crimes department against uh, against literacy. They'd never get that out on the BBC. Absolutely, it would be pared down to about you know one minute of, out of fifteen. Oh, South Park. I mean, that's that's the real test of all of this. South Park would not be commissioned by the BBC. It would not be aired by the BBC. If a, if a, if a British uh, a bunch of cartoonists in the UK tried to make something like that, it wouldn't make it through their processes because South Park is gloriously irreverent. It is super un-PC. It mocks all aspects of wokeness. It even makes fun of transgender ideas can you imagine the bbc promoting anything that makes you know pokes a bit of fun at the idea of transgenderism absolutely impossible because they are beholden to the religion of wokeness and they see anyone who criticizes that stuff as a heretic so that is not a that culture is not conducive to creativity that's Mm. the problem if you want creativity you've got to give people free reign to make fun to ask questions and to kick against orthodoxies and until the bbc gives people that kind of free reign it's not going to produce anything of that quality no exactly right now we're getting in the neck from somebody called g mcmahon who says no one eats roast beef dinners just shows you how out of touch mike graham and brendan o'neill are to be honest (laughs) it's a staple meal in yorkshire well it would be in yorkshire because that's where they have yorkshire pudding presumably uh, well, you know, I have a roast dinner every now and then, and I'm sure lots of other people do too. But it's not the symbol that it once was, and that's what's revealing about mm. the BBC's comments. You know, right. uh, the, the the national meal uh, you were saying earlier. You know, some people say it's chicken tikka masala, yeah. curry takeaway. It's probably a doner uh, kebab, actually, isn't be. it? Yeah, it's shaken up. It's changed. You know, the, people's attitudes and tastes have changed over the years. But mm. of course, people still eat roast dinners. The point is that. The BBC, in latching onto that as the one thing they could think of, demonstrates that they have no understanding of the broader British culture and no understanding of how British culture is changing and what young people want when they watch funny TV shows. No, exactly right. Well, we shall continue in our quest, Brendan, to get people to tell us what they think British culture stands for. But thank you very much indeed. Brendan O'Neill there from Spiked Online. He's the editor there. Um, What is British culture? What can you tell the BBC to focus in on? What can you, I mean, and also, isn't it a bit ridiculous? It's a bit like Keir Starmer, isn't it, coming out and saying, oh, I know, I'll tell you what I'll do to appeal to the great British public who have left the Labour Party to vote Conservative. Uh, I'll tell them that we're going to wave a couple of Union Jacks around uh, and then I'll put on a decent suit. Uh, I'll make sure I don't look like a tramp so they won't confuse me with Jeremy Corbyn. And then they'll make me Prime Minister. 
Well, no, Sir Keir Starmer, you can't just wave a flag and everybody goes, oh, yeah, look at that. He's proud of his country. Clearly not proud of your country. Uh, and neither of the BBC and neither is Patricia Hidalgo. But let's hear it for British culture. Let's find out what it is. What's it all about? I mean, I don't really care for the British Broadcasting Corporation to only make programmes about Britain. That's not the point. The point is this, as uh, Brendan said, if they ever did get their hands on commissioning a cartoon series, can you imagine how awful it would be? Compared to what they're putting out at the moment, it'd be just dreadful. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday, it's 12.48, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. It is that time, it is that time on a Friday, but this time uh, it's a little bit different. Marta Malagon has been, uh, shall we say, usurped on this particular week, and instead she's been su supplanted, you might say, uh, by our production, um, deputy production producer, <laughs> whatever you call it. I don't even know if you've got a title, have you? Uh, well, we can go with assistant producer. Assistant but producer, yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. Uh, it's Isabel Rowland. Welcome <laughs> to oh. the Perry Awards. Thank you, and I'm already losing my headphones. First time ever. So, well, listen, yeah. you only need them just in case he wants to say something to you. That's you true. You can tighten them up Testing. if you like as well. No. <laughs> you know. So, um, over to you. Well, thank you, and welcome, everybody, to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is the Perry Awards, where we go back and choose our favourite moments. Mm. Now, as tradition, Mike, yes. the uh, first Perrier Award goes to you. Very happy for, about that. Uh, yes, for the Mathematician of the Week. Thank you. I mean, do you really want your children forced to wear a mask for around eight hours? Now, you might say what the kid's doing in school for eight hours, but it's effectively how long they're there. Half past eight till about half past three is eight hours by anybody's reckoning, mm. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, some people pointed out to me, pedants, yeah. I call them, that mm. that was only seven hours. So if you go from half eight, half yeah. nine, half ten, half eleven, half twelve, half one, half two, half three. Yeah. However, However, the reason, as you will expect me to give you, uh, which is why it becomes eight hours, is because it's not always absolute yes. from half past eight. Mm. So it could be 25 past eight, right, to eight. half past three. Now, that to me is over seven hours. So you're eating into the eighth hour. Yes. Or yes. if he's there from like a, a little bit after half past three, which he sometimes mm. is, he sometimes gets detention. Yeah, that's true. Because he's a bit like me, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, he's getting gets in trouble. Yeah. Then... You know, it's, it's eight hours. And also, might my, my, I uh, point out as well, if, uh, and I know she's listening, if your mother is late for you yes. every day picking you up from school, it could then, be eight uh, hours. It could be eight hours, indeed. Sally. Thank so. you very much indeed. <laughs> but I'll accept the Perrier for Mathematician of the Week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so next in line, the Perrier Awards goes to caller Alistair in Berwick upon Tweed mm. for the de Detective of the Week. Look at his ears. His ears? <laughs> not the same as Charles. Come off it. Come on, look well, at are your ears look the same as your dad's that. ears? <laughs> my ears are not look the same that. as my dad's ears. Yes, they are. No, they're not. You don't know my yes, dad. They're... Well, I'm telling you, they For are. For all you know, my dad didn't have any ears. <laughs> <laughs> I'd completely forgotten that call. Yeah. That was great. Yes. Now, can you confirm on air if your dad has ears? He, do he does indeed have ears, uh, but he doesn't have them anymore because he's not with us anymore. But apart I from that, you know, don't, you don't have to apologise. Uh, he would think it's very funny that, okay. that somebody asked about his ears, despite <laughs> the fact he's been dead for about 10 years. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> gosh. It's oh, fine. Oh. Don't, don't worry about it. Okay. Um, as, moving on. Um, on. <laughs> so, as you know, the you host... You the other members no. of my family? <laughs> no. Go for it. I'm so sorry no, to the worry. Grahams. It's all right. Uh, so, uh, as you know, the homeschooling segment has been a well-ingrained part of the it show uh, since the first lockdown. Now, this Perry Award goes to you, mm. of course, yes. uh, for the Scientist of the Week. Is there any danger that it could get overheated? Because it's pretty hot up there, isn't it? No, it's cold. Is Mars it? is cold. The hottest <laughs> temperature at the equator in the middle of summer, in the middle of day, is about 20 degrees centigrade. You see, that's mm. a really idiotic thing to say, isn't it? I mean, I should have known that Mars is cold. But well, because it's called the Red Planet, right, and because it's a desert, yes. I immediately think it's hot. I mean, I, I mean, the colour red obviously indicates heat. So, I, so I thought it would be absolutely El Scorchio yeah, up there. Yeah, and it's not that much further mm. away from the sun, is it? Well, no, exactly. So I yeah. don't understand really. Anyway, no, I, I do sometimes make these blunders, but you know, listen, I'm only human. You are. I can't you are. know everything. No, you're not. You're almost perfect, Mike. Almost. Uh, right then. So a show favourite, mm. uh, Simon Calder, gave us an update on travel. Yes. Uh, as many as you know. Um, 
basically we've all kind of missed holidays this year. Certainly have. So it's important to kind of get that update from Calder. Uh, he gets a Perry Award for the Awkward Laugh of the Week. And we can't just continue to ban people from various different countries and stop people from going anywhere. Mike, you say that, but then have a listen to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I'd rather they are not. In... <laughs> uh, Scotland, um, she, of course, is the First Minister. For the um, moment. I... <laughs> I mean, we'll be talking about that coming up a bit later on in the show. Right, you know, okay. She's on what uh, they call it in Scotland, a sugarly peg. <laughs> I mean, you'd think he was some kind of diplomat. He's a yeah. journalist. Why, you know, why is he worried about me slagging off Nicola Sturgeon? Well, you know, maybe he's he's worried that he won't be able to get into Scotland. Maybe he is, yeah. Well, no, well nobody can at the moment, I think. Well, no, they? that's true. That's true. He's quarantine in a hotel. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm. hopefully, hopefully his, uh, Scot- his trip to Scotland will be, uh, you know, back on track. I'm sure we'll see him soon. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so, the Best Dad Award goes to you, Mike, for dragging your kids on holiday. Thank you. I mean, that's the other question. I mean, a lot of people, have, and, and I would be included in this, uh, have children... Uh, who they want to take with them on holiday, regardless of the fact that I'd quite like to go without them sometimes. I have to you know, drag them along. <laughs> but it is true. I mean, there are times when I fly to America on my own to go and see my mother, mm. who's not dead. Oh. Um, and um, uh, I really uh, I sort of bask in the beauty of just travelling alone because mm. I don't normally do that. Yeah. And it is a pain to travel with lots of people. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know. Well, we always used to be final call for the Rollins. Yes, that's final it. call. Absolutely right. Oh, what do you mean you've left the boarding pass on the other side of the security gate? Yeah. Oh, have you, I sent left your child as well. Mm, I know. <laughs> Shocking. Um, so, um, obviously, as you know, we are the fastest growing radio station in all of the land. We are. Uh, and our YouTube channel has taken off, um, you know, a thousand percent. Mm, it has. So this award goes to you, of course. Thank Cue you. Cue the visual Perrier oh, yes. uh, for the Anne Robinson Weakest Link uh, Perrier Award. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. What, um, what I like um, about these three, like... The more premium gins, you can actually sip them by themselves quite a lot of the time. And I like to do that first just to get like the, the measure of the gin. And then well, I can't I, open then the I... tonic, so I'm not having any of that. Uh, bad preparation, I'm afraid. I couldn't open it. No, no Never mind, I'll just drink it, uh, I'll drink it neat. Well, you try it neat, but just, you know, have it. It is have lovely. It, well it is really, it's, it's a very traditional tasting gin. Are you going to have a try uh, opening that? There you go. <laughs> Uh, my glamorous assistant is going to try and open it because she's probably stronger than I am. There you go. She's from Yorkshire. She's opened it. Well done. There you go. So you actually managed to open it. Yes. I don't uh, know what that was, though, because, I mean, I'm not normally weak, particularly at opening bottles. I think it was just slippery. Well, I mean, it wasn't in my hands, Mike, I, I must I must say. Right. Uh, however, when you did say, you know, open the gin bottles, I was like, yeah, but you'd be fine with a tonic, clearly. Well, so, you know. it just goes to show you uh, can't prepare enough no, for these things, can exactly. you? Exactly. I'll know for next time. All right. Uh, so the final award for this week is the Megan Impression of the Week. They are no longer part of the royal family. They'll continue to do their service uh, in some other way. That's what they'll do. That was a small one. Yes, it was. Perfectly formed. Yes, and, you know, always kind of hits the nail on the head where it needs to. Funnily enough, on that subject, I've had a new um, has um, thing from uh, Jim who's texted in, has loads of money. Oh, very good, yes. That's good, isn't it? Quite like that one. Well, Izzy, thank you very much indeed. Yes. You were very good, and oh. I'm sure you can come back and do it again. Thank you. Thank you. And that that was all for the Perry Awards. There will be more next week. The Perry Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.